Blog Talk Radio. I own it, I did that, not proud that that was me, and when I face it, I take back a little dignity, not looking for excuses, I just want to be free from power. Hi everyone, this is Jean and welcome to the Bubble Hour, where real people tell real stories of addiction and recovery. We have a fabulous guest tonight who's going to tell us all about her journey from alcohol addiction to living a full and happy life in recovery. But first, let's say hello hello to tonight's co-host, Catherine. Hi, Catherine. Hey, Jean, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. It's nice to be back. I had quite a long break, but... Uh, I've been missing. I know. Missing we miss guys. you. I have had to it's, talk to I myself. I need my gene fix. <laughs> uh, yeah, this this show really, you know, it connects us to some pretty amazing people, including one another, and it's it's a special time. But I was I was listening to uh, the podcast while I was off and feeling like I was with you and talking back to the podcast as if I was part of oh, it. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it only looks a little bit crazy because I was walking my dog at the time, but anyway. <laughs> Stranger <laughs> things also have happened. Yeah, exactly. My neighbors are never surprised. Uh, we also have Ellie live tweeting our show tonight. Uh, I'm going to say hi, Ellie, but I know that she's on mute. She can't say hi back, so we're waving at you, Ellie. And I also want to give out a shout-out to Amanda because she had tonight off the show, but I still had to touch base with her and ask her if she could... Uh, handle some technical stuff this afternoon. So we're sending out lots of love to you guys. We we love our crew, don't we? We just have yes. the the best group that comes together on this the show. Best. The best. And before I introduce our guest tonight, who's also pretty amazing, I just want to share a little bit with you about how things unfold. So you know that kind of goosebumpy moment when you connect with a person and you sort of realize all of a sudden that your paths have been interwoven and visibly that like fate was fate was conspiring for years to sort of achieve this moment that brought you together well that is my feeling about how tonight's guest came to be on our show so you may listeners may recall a little while ago we interviewed Lori Butterfield who was the director of lipstick and liquor uh excellent episode excellent movie if you haven't already listened to it it aired march 15th it's in our archives on the bubblehour.com so check that out after you listen to this episode well one of the move, one of the women that was profiled in that movie lipstick and liquor is emily sadler and she writes about life and recovery on her blog emilyism.com so i'm going to say hello to her right now we have her on the line hello emily welcome to the bubble hour hi girls i'm so glad hi. to be here hey oh we're so glad you're here now i sent you something when i first contacted you and asked you about being on this show because this was my goosebumpy moment. So a few years ago, Emily was written about in People magazine about the fact that she, um, she was blogging. And it was pretty unusual a few years ago for women to be blogging about sobriety. And I happened to still be drinking at that time. And I was on a plane 
flipping through a People magazine, uh, and I just about peed my pants because I stumbled across information about Emily's blog, and I tapped into my phone, emilyism.com, so that when I got to my hotel that night, I could squirrel up in my room and read about a real live woman talking about life in recovery. And I didn't get sober for well over a year after that, but I sent Emily a screenshot of my phone because that note is still on my phone. It's been like five phones and ten updates later, but it's still on my phone. And so I just sent her this screenshot of a note dated January 2010 that says com, And I was like, Emily, you helped me get sober before I even was ready to start. So I was pretty excited to watch that movie and see you in it and go, oh, my God, that's the girl that helped me. And I'm so happy that you're on the show, Emily. Thank you so much, and thank you for sharing that story. It is You always wonder if you're just kind of blogging out into cyberspace. And right. so when, when someone says, like, hey, it touched me, or you said this and, and it helped me, it keeps you motivated to continue to share your story, which Definitely. is rewarding, yeah. but as you know, not always easy. Yes, exactly. And, you know, you hit post on a or publish on a post, and you don't say to yourself, I'm saving someone's life right now. You know, you kind of think, like you said, I don't know, is this worth doing? Am I helping anybody? And you are, and you did, and you have, and and uh, I'm paying it forward for sure. So, yeah, that's my goosebump story, and I'm just so excited to hear your voice and have you on the show. So without further ado, let's have you tell us a little bit about yourself and, and tell us your story, Emily. Okay, um, I'm a little bit nervous, so I'm going to start out my story the way that I do in the most comfortable place that I share it. So I'm Emily, and I'm an alcoholic. Um, I was born into a family where if everything looked okay, and everybody looked cute, and we were all put together that everything was okay, you didn't talk about your dirty laundry, and you didn't hear it. Um, so here I was, this child, and I was born with a very bad case of eczema, and a decent case of ADD and a little bit of an inability to learn in a standard way, getting this message that I was supposed to sit down and sit still. So to say that I was restless and irritable and discontent from birth is an understatement. Mm. Wow. I'm super, super uncomfortable. And so as a little girl, I still had this need to help people. You know, as a little kid that visited the older people in the neighborhood and all of that, but I was just completely uncomfortable and itchy and crawling out of my skin. So the second that I learned that there was an out from that feeling um, in my teenage years and that I could escape it, I took it in every form I possibly could. Whatever was going to make me feel comfortable, I did. And my poor mom, because I was the worst teenager, in through the door out through the windows, not coming home at night, and just completely out of control. And as you girls know, I now have teenagers, so that's funny. <laughs> Luckily, they are not <laughs> as bad as Payback I was, time. but they're teenagers still, right? Payback. My mom's like, oh, please do not complain to me about them. They're perfect in comparison to you. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, I just completely ran amok as a teenager. And as a young adult, when you are completely free-willed and running around crazy, um, what happens you know, it's, you get pregnant, and I did, thank God. Um, I got pregnant with my oldest son, and all that mattered to me from the second that happened was being a good mom, and my disease paused. 
but it was just a pause. So for a few years, I played the part of that perfect family where it looked perfect and everything was great. We were all dressed in gap clothes and we had a house and this life that looked perfect, the little league field, you know. But it wasn't because I was still this irritable and restless and discontent person who had no coping skills. And so I could keep that together for a while. I had, I lost my dad and I didn't have any coping skills before and I certainly didn't know how to cope with that. And so what was kind of normal drinking in my marriage, you know, after 5 o'clock, um, having, having some beers with friends or whatever, um, turned into every day the second that I could kind of drinking. It led to a divorce, which as much as it wasn't the marriage that I should have been in, it was still a breakdown of what I had created in my mind as this perfect-looking family. And I had absolutely no clue how to deal with that. And so my disease completely took over at that point. And all of the consequences of alcoholism, I mean, it was like a six-month period of time where I ended up in institutions in jail getting DUIs, embarrassing myself, having conversations with people that I didn't remember, waking up, you know, remorseful and not remembering anything, and having my entire life revolve around um, alcohol. Everything I did, everything I thought about was about you know, my next drink. And I never really struggled with the fact that I was an alcoholic. I knew it had me. Like, I knew that I was absolutely um, taken with the disease. So um, I got a DUI, um, and I looked at my car, and I thought, oh, my God, if I don't get sober, I'm going to drive drunk again. I knew. I knew I would drive drunk again. That denial was completely lifted lifted from me, and so I walked down the street to a woman who I knew had sobriety. I knew that she was in a recovery program. I didn't know anything about it. I just knew um, that she was sober, and I knocked on her door, and and I asked for help. I said, you know, I I need help, and she said, honey, what do you need? Like, I was going to ask for a cup of sugar, and um, I said, (laughs) I'm an alcoholic, and um, she said, well, you know, tell me a little bit about it, and I told her, and she said, yeah, that's what we do. And it was the use of the word we at a time that I was so lonely that I wanted to die that was a game changer for me because we meant that I was no longer alone. And I'm, she's old school recovery, so she said, I'm sure you can't stay sober tomorrow because the next day was Thanksgiving. She said, I'll pick you up at 6.45 on Friday morning, and if you're out there, I'll show you how to get sober. And she did. And I was out there, which I look back and I can't even believe it. She brought me into the rooms of recovery, told me to sit down and listen, and I did. Everybody in there was laughing. As much as I couldn't fathom being that happy, I wanted what they had. And I was willing to do whatever it took. Um, and I did, and I stayed sober. And as as hard as it was at times, you know, I got this brand-new, amazing life. I worked very, very hard for it. Um, and And really all of the giving back that I'm blessed to be able to do um, is to help people know that recovery is an amazing life and that that lonely feeling doesn't last forever and that, you know, your recovery program will help you get connected to God, which for me was that, that's what that lonely feeling was. It was a major disconnect from my higher power. So I'm seven years sober and my life's amazing now. and That's my story. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I just feel the pain of being a young mom and being so trapped in that. What was it like for you as you started to transition and 
as in those first few weeks, what was that like for you? How did you get through with a young family on your own? Uh, my first few weeks in recovery? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, so I hardly remember them now, but when I think back, like, I was so in so much pain and so lonely and sad and broken that I emerged myself in my recovery program. So I went to a meeting in the morning and went at night. I stayed around sober people. Um, and I was super uncomfortable when I wasn't when I wasn't in the recovery program, but I just heard the message, hold on tight, do not give up, this will pass. You know, there is life on the other side of, of alcoholism. And, and But, yeah, it was super painful and uncomfortable. And, you know, and when did... Go ahead, Catherine. Well, I'm just, I'm so struck, Emily. Thank you for, for your honesty and your share. I just, I'm so struck by how many of us say that we came from families where no one talked about what was happening, where everything was supposed to look perfect, and that so many of us carried that into our adult lives. Um, that that's just that's such a painful thing and i and so I'm, i really i got goosebumps when you said the use of the word we because there's just so much here that i feel like i know i personally am identifying with and i just have so much in common with you and i know Jean, you and i have talked about this same kind of stuff it's just it's so remarkable to me what is that <laughs> rhetorical <laughs> question yeah. But the the common experience of trying to be perfect on the outside but really being conflicted. It just yeah. causes it, so much discomfort, right? Like mm-hmm. and to so not acknowledge the people. things. Yeah. Um it really sounds to me like you were self medicating um some other things too, Emily, and did you end up getting like diagnosis or finding a better way to deal with some of the things that you were sort of trying to escape within yourself using alcohol, or how have you sort of addressed that piece of it? I, I for sure still am dual diagnosis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I work on recovery from my mental illness just as much as I do from my alcoholism. So I am on an antidepressant, and I know that that can be kind of a thing, but for me, I tried not being on it. I just tried doing my recovery program as best I, as I could, and I was still depressed. So, mm-hmm. you know, I I definitely have to treat and work and pray about and focus on both ends of the spectrum. So it really comes down to being sort of relentless about your self-care, doesn't it? Oh, for sure. Now, I was just reading on your blog that you were sort of conflicted in one of your recent posts where you were taking care of work, but it was yourself that needed taking care of. And yeah. you find yourself often at that crossroads? Um, so that was like the most vulnerable post, that, that series of posts where I, I blogged about the big event and how I had to back out of it um, in order to take care of myself. I was having a breakdown, <laughs> really. And so um, sharing about that was really powerful because it it taught me going forward in my business the things that I needed to fix. Like I wasn't delegating and I wasn't going to as many meetings as I should have and like my insurance to keep myself healthy was not intact and you know I think as you get a little bit of time and you start thinking you're bulletproof and I'm for sure not and that was really humbling for me to have to and 
we should mention just because I know we talked about that this was okay to mention on the on the sh- on the show, but your business is you're an event planner and right. you have your own company. Website is etcbyemily.com, and so we have a lot of listeners and a lot of people in early sobriety <laughs> think life is not. I'm going to be no fun if I quit drinking, and you're. Like your job is to throw fun events make fun. and make fun things yeah. happen. So what's Yay. that like? You're right. <laughs> totally, your life is not over, people. I promise. Um, I do. I plan and staff and create and attend amazing events, and I can dance sober and attend them and have fun. And my my life is amazing. I'm actually present at parties and I wake up and I'm not guilty and I don't feel like what did I say or what did I do? And so I do remember that feeling of, oh, my God, am I ever going to dance again or am I ever going to feel like I'm not crawling out of my skin or that uncomfortable feeling when you're around people. And so for sure I can do all of that. I do, though, um, make sure that I am, that I'm spiritually healthy, you know, and Mm -hmm. there are times that um, I, I can only maybe stay at an event for two or three hours and I do have a staff that, that I have. So I trust myself. When the party's over for me, I leave. So that's probably the most important lesson that we learn in early sobriety, especially if we're used to being the last person at a party. <laughs> oh my god! Oh my god. <laughs> it's okay to just leave when you need to leave. Just, sure. in fact, plan to do that, and don't you don't have to go around the room and make a big deal out of it. It's okay to just slip out. That's self-care. That's self-love, right? Yeah. And and as you were saying, so also learning to what what's okay to say yes to, and when when you need to say no as a business owner, an event planner, that's part of your self-care too. There was a big lesson in that. That took a lot of bravery to do that, really, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. That was a that was a tough one, but I I just knew I knew that I was going to go down if I didn't. And it really just like. So many times God has done in my life, it redirected me exactly where I needed to be in my business. Like it really was the the breaking point where my business kind of took off, and it put me exactly where I needed I needed to be. And sometimes growth is super uncomfortable, and not like I would like the lesson to be a little gent- more gentle sometimes. <laughs> like, oh, no, God, you could have whispered it in my ear. Did I really need a butt kicking? But yeah, right. exactly. Put the note under the door. Thank you very much. I'll listen, I promise. You know, one thing that I noticed, Emily, was, you you know, you said that, especially in the beginning, you stayed around sober people. And yet, I know for myself, and something that we hear a lot from listeners, that can be a hard ball to get rolling. Like, once you get into the mix, you start to get to know people in your recovery community. But, you know, can you talk a little bit about what that was like? If somebody's out there listening saying like, oh, I'm a little nervous about, you know, checking out a recovery meeting or something like that. And then, well, what do you, like, why do I want to hang around with these people? What does that mean? Like, can you comment on that? Sure. Um, Well, for me, understanding today, it is those people's responsibility to make the new person feel welcome and loved. Like, that's really um, our responsibility as recovered people. And so going into meetings should be an embracing an embracing feeling. 
on the flip side of that, I think that we all kind of had that time in high school or in middle school where we didn't feel like we fit in. All we wanted was to feel a part of, and that takes a minute. And so in, in early recovery, I didn't always feel like I fit in. I kind of felt like there was a click and all of these things, but I knew that I needed to be there. So I just, you know, stuck around until I until I felt like I belonged, which took not too much time, but a little bit of time. You're right, it does take a minute. Yeah, I, I think I I took more than a minute. I I know that I was like a I was a little onion kind of coming unpeeled layer by layer, and it it took me a while. To, some of my uh, I've talked on the show before about um, how some of my recovery work has really uncovered a lot of distrust in people, and you know, getting to know that community, getting to know anybody, and now it's funny because I find myself just calling people, friends in and outside of my recovery program just to say hi. Like, people do that. They actually call friends to talk on the phone. Yeah, I never did that. I didn't do that for 15 years. Like, I had no friends. Well, I had friends sort of, but I didn't call people. I didn't hang out. And now, unless the hanging out was, like, with a thousand bottles of champagne, then then I'd hang out. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Like having sober phone conversations, I remember being really uncomfortable for a long time. Like I just didn't talk on the phone anymore because I took all my jobs on the phone when I was drunk. Right. That took a minute or six months. It took a minute or two, yeah. yeah. <laughs> keep, keep coming back, you know. Right. And you were saying that you have teenagers. What's your experience like as a parent do you, like how do you feel about what you're modeling for them, and what's their response to your sobriety? So I think that they're really proud of me, and they like having a sober parent, except for the fact that um, you can't really snow me. Like I'm very <laughs> present, and, and I know what time it is. If you know what I mean, like if they are sneaking out or if they're doing whatever, whatever they're doing, they get caught way sooner than. Have I been intoxicated still? No. <laughs> and they they had to. God, it was so much easier. You said yes to so much more. I'm like, yeah, I know, I know, I did. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> and so there's so no more denial. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> tough luck. Um, on your website, you had posted this beautiful essay that one of your children had written for school, and um, I asked permission if we could read it tonight because I just think it it's so amazing and just says. So much, and your child did say that it was okay. What he what did. grade was this um, um, when he wrote this? He's a freshman. Okay, so this is like a high school paper. Uh, so this is an essay that that um, one of Emily's children wrote about her. Do you mind if I go ahead and read it? No, go right ahead. Okay, and I'll try not to cry. Uh, This is the greatest gift ever. It's called Road to Recovery. When I was growing up, my mom was a major drinker. She got her second DUI when I was only six. She spent a couple weeks in jail. When I was seven, she decided to stop drinking because if she got another DUI, she would spend years in prison and never be able to drive again. This led her to take a road to recovery. My mom, like most alcoholics, had an incredibly hard time giving up what helped her keep herself together. Her sponsor helped her get through this hard part of her life. Her sponsor is an older woman who's been in recovery upwards of 40 years. 
until my mom could reestablish herself and get her license back, she would go to one or two meetings a day. Going to this many meetings really helped her thrive in life. She started a website called emilyism.com to help other alcoholic moms get through their struggles. She would blog daily, and her website progressively got more and more popular. She was put in an article for People magazine about her story. She was also on an episode of Dr. Phil talking about how to help other alcoholic women. She later starred in a documentary about alcoholic, about another alcoholic mom called Lipstick and Liquor. Until my mom got her car back, times were very hard when I was living with her. We were very poor and could hardly afford food. As soon as my mom got back on her feet, she started to work for Bill Johnson's Big Apple where she found herself loving her job there as event coordinator. She loved her job because they feed minor league for baseball teams during spring training. For me, being a giant baseball fan, this was a dream. I got to hang out in the Cubs clubhouse and talk to baseball players. It was amazing. After two years of working for Bill Johnson's Big Apple, she realized that the restaurant was going to have to close soon. So she bravely quit and started her own business called, is it Etcetra by Emily? Etcetra by Emily. Uh, it is an employment concierge company. My mom said that she will make $100,000 per year within the first five years of starting her business. She's still trying to get that, but with her skills, I believe she will be able to do it. When I was younger, I didn't truly understand everything my mom has gone through. And now that I do, I have very much respect for how hard she has had to work to become the person that she is today. I'm proud that she's overcome every obstacle that has gotten in her way, whether it be drinking, smoking, or finding a job. I'm just proud to say that she's my mom. Okay, now we'll take a moment. (laughs) Oh, my gosh. How did did you feel when you read those words? It for sure took my breath away. You know, like, but as beautiful as it is and as much as I'm like, oh, my God, he's so proud of me, the part where he said we were poor and we could hardly eat broke my heart, you know? I mean, we have a completely different life today, but you never want your children to have to have to go through any of that, you know? So it kind of, right. of course, you know, I, I want to be the perfect mom. And so the whole essay is beautiful, but that's the one part where he struggled. And so mm-hmm. reading that hurt a little bit. The rest of it, though, I like, oh, my God. Wow. I hear I hear so many women say that a big part of their motivation to get sober is to make their children proud and to be a better mom. And you've been given an incredible gift to have this evidence that you succeeded in that. And even with that hard, you know, sad part of it, of the hard times, it really shows that he was with you on that journey and, and sees it now. That's so beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, he's a so I love that, you know, you said at the beginning, too, that, like, when you were having your first child, that being a good mom, that was your prime directive. And now I just I feel so grateful to think about you and Jean and Ellie and all the sober parents that I know being present for their children and being authentic as well. So, like, that kind of breaks that legacy of everything's got to be perfect and I have to appear a certain way. And that's a major gift to the, the 
generations, you know, right. it's like healing, healing the lineage. Yeah, right. it's yeah. unbelievable. Yeah, I mean, I know that we talk about things that would shock some families, you know, but we are open and we discuss the, the hard stuff and feelings and, you know, what's really going on and even the stuff that I don't want to hear, mm-hmm. I allowed them to talk about because I'd rather have yeah. them be open about it. Definitely. So, you allow yourself to be really vulnerable on your blog, Emily, because, you you know, you share you shared this um, essay of your son's on your blog and you've talked about some of the hard things you've gone through and you talk about mental illness and you talk about your love life and success and failure <laughs> and all kinds of things. Um, you know, that's, you're saving lives by doing that, but tell me a little bit about what your experience has been in the feedback that you get from people. What's that like for you? Oh, my gosh. So I am so blessed with the feedback that I get. Like, I think I've had, in, I've blogged for about five years, and I think I've had, like, two rude comments. Mm-hmm. And my readers are immediately like, we use kind and beautiful behavior on Emilyism because that's Aww. what it's about, right? So, like, I've really gotten blessed. I know some bloggers that have been, you know, and there's there's always critics or whatever, haters or whatever you want to call them. But I've been really lucky to just have people thank me for blogging and kind of keep me going when when I've thought like, why am I still blogging? Like, is anybody listening? Um, so I've the community is is amazing. Some of them talk to each other on the phone and email each other, and so it's pretty special. That's very fantastic. Special. So it's like all service; it sort of gives back to you as you give it out there, right? Yeah, oh, for sure. There were times when I would have isolated and possibly, especially when I first started Emilyism, that possibly would have gone into a depression had I not known that I committed to getting on there and saying something. So there's about seven months in there where I was really depressed and I blogged anyway. And so the blog really kept me healthy. And how did you come to start yeah. a blog? What what in, What was your idea there? How did it? Why did I start it? Was that the question? Yeah, yeah. So I started it after I was in People magazine, and I didn't want um, I didn't want this article to come out, and I didn't break my anonymity or any of that. I didn't want this article to come out and people not be able to find me or know mm-hmm. where to go or be able to ask me questions. Like here I am telling my story in the hopes that a woman says, "Oh my gosh, you know, I have this." Right? Just just like you were sharing, like it had this eye-opening moment and then not be able to find me. And so I, st- I had no clue how to start a blog. So I prayed. And that was during the time that I really, like my conscious contact was amazing. And all I could hear was every time I would say, I don't know how to, I don't know how to anything, I would hear, I do. Like this is <laughs> meditation, I do. And I created a blog like with no internet. <laughs> it was amazing. And so it really created itself. Um, but but I, really the idea was that people could find me if I was going to go out there on the front lines and tell my story. I wanted people to be able to ask personal personal stuff, and, and that did happen. Lots of people from Dr. Phil and from People Magazine emailed me directly and said, what do I do? How do I, how do I even start? Oh, that's amazing. And I just want to comment on something that you said that really struck me, Emily, which was that when you were depressed for several months, you did it anyway. You blogged anyway. And right. that's that's something that <coughs> excuse me, I'm really learning 
in recovery is just doing it anyway, whether it's the whole act as if and just kind of just keep going. Um, I know that my months four through seven, I think, were really dark, frankly. They were... Um, I, I always had, I, I struggled more with anxiety than with depression, but my anxiety spiked to levels that I had never experienced before. And I was thinking, oh, great, like now I'm sober and, you know, this isn't, it's getting worse. But I just, I knew I wasn't going to go back. So I just said, oh, I don't know what to do. So I'm just going to keep going, you know. And, right. and, um, my my sponsor in my recovery program says that how does she say we don't we don't wait for the courage to do the brave thing we get the courage by doing it even when we're in fear just you know take the action and keep doing it um so i just i'm i'm really moved by you saying that that showing up and like being of service and being accountable to other people um as a way of navigating through your sobriety and your depression as well. I do think that the disease tells you, like, that's how it gets you, right? When you're depressed and you don't feel like going to a meeting or you don't Mm. feel like reaching out, right? It can suck you back in. And so I have learned that it doesn't matter if I don't feel like blogging. It doesn't matter if I don't feel like going to a meeting. It doesn't matter how I feel (laughs) because my feeling is not (laughs) on me very carefully I know a guy who says every day I wake up with untreated alcoholism. See, it's like the reset button, and, you know, and every day I got to do something about it. Um, You're you're talking about your sponsor reminded me of I was probably about seven months sober, and I was out to breakfast with my sponsor, and I said, does this get better? Because this sucks, and I'm doing everything I'm supposed to be doing. Like this, I... This is horrible. I feel horrible. I've always been with emotions. And she looked at me and she said, do you really think there would be people in long-term, long-term sobriety if it didn't get better? And I was like, oh, good point. Oh. Like nobody would ever have five years <laughs> or ten so years obvious. or certainly not 20 if it didn't get better. Come on. <laughs> so I, if we don't think so yet, that never occurred to me. That never occurred <laughs> to me either. I love that. <laughs> right. She's awesome. Ellie, I hope you tweeted that one. That was a good one. <laughs> Oprah would call it a tweetable moment. that's cute let's talk for a minute about the movie lipstick and liquor what was your experience like participating in that production and what kind of feedback did you get about your involvement um that was a really special experience being part of because um when laurie butterfield called me to ask me she 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 knows how i feel that, that there's a misunderstanding about addiction and alcoholism and law enforcement and with the government. And she, she knows that I really want that stereotype broken. And so she, when she called and she told me um, the story, Julie's story, I completely, completely wanted to be a part of it. Um, and the feedback has been amazing. It's mostly the feedback that I've gotten is from families because it explained it to them in a, tr- in a way that they could understand alcoholism and addiction better. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like, it because we were sharing our stories and it wasn't in a recovery room and it was instead in a documentary, it really 
helped families understand what their loved ones were going through and helped them identify maybe if there was an alcohol problem that somebody hadn't come forward with yet. So mm-hmm. lots of families reaching out. And so was there was there change in understanding similar to the stigma that you were hoping to break with law enforcement, which is that, you know, these aren't bad people trying to commit crimes. These are sick people who need help to get well. Did the families really come to understand that? Um, I I think so. Mm-hmm. I think so. You know, and that must have been a healing a lot experience. To turn that around. Yeah, yeah. It's one thing for for society and law enforcement to see that differently because obviously, in that case, you know. A woman was missing, and no one went looking for her because they thought she was a a criminal. But from the family's point of view, I would think it would be really healing to embark on that shift and to see that, you know, to to understand from someone like you that you know it's not that their family member doesn't love them or wants this. Um, And has that been impactful to you? Yeah, the idea yeah. that it can be controlled by self-will. You know, right. And you hear from that many women in one documentary that it cannot be. Right. Yeah. Right. I mean, Absolutely. that's a hard thing for I mean, even alcoholics to understand about ourselves. Right? I am the strongest-willed person. I mean, I am so willful. <laughs> I've said this before <laughs> that my sponsor one time said, she said to me more than once, but I remember one time in particular of saying, like, boy, you have a really strong ego and it's so true like I am the most I can power through work or any laborious task without eating and sleeping like I can just mentally power through anything and I could not stop I could not stop drinking so like and I had a hard time thinking of it as a disease until I had a few months sober under my belt, and then I was like, oh, yeah, that makes all the sense in the world because otherwise, if it were a matter of self-will, I would have stopped or I would have been able to control it. It doesn't make any sense to think about it. You know, you guys, I was on a plane today traveling, and I was sitting next to this lovely woman who was really interested in what I do, and I now just was like, blah, I'm in recovery, and I write about it, and I tell people about it, and and um, so she had a million questions about it. And one thing that was really surprising to her as I explained it is like, listen, people with addiction aren't partying. They're not necessarily drinking to have fun. They're drinking to feel normal. They're using to feel normal because addiction is to where you you just don't feel normal really if you don't have it. And Or once you start, you can't stop. Like there is no, it's not fun. And that's a real eye-opener for people, too, to understand that, listen, it's not that I'm having too much fun doing this, to choose to to not, you know, willpower through it. It's that this is this is necessary, or this seems necessary in order for me to just feel normal. That's a, that's a hard thing for people to understand, too. And how miserable the addict and alcoholic really is. We yeah. may be pretending we're using that it's not horribly lonely and you know, degrading, but it is. You know, the end yeah. of using and drinking can be some of the loneliest, darkest parts of people's lives. So, Emily, I'm curious, what do you say to that listener, that reader that's saying, you know, am I an alcoholic? 
um, what do you say to them? Like, what did surrender feel like for you? And, and you know, how would you approach someone who's asking that question today? Um, I haven't gotten that question in a long time. Am I an alcoholic? And I try not, because I don't know. I don't, I don't know if they are, and they have to know they are. You know, that's the, really the biggest part of starting recovery. But, you know, I mean, if you're having conversations you don't remember and, you know, if you're paying the bed, if you're having blackouts, if you're, you know, screaming and yelling at your family and at your husband and you're doing things that go against your morals and everything you are, then chances are good, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think that most well, alcoholics know in their soul that they're an alcoholic. That is you know, true. And all that, that idea of stuff, you know, not not going well, you know, there are some recovery programs that say our lives had become unmanageable. And that can be, especially for women, at least for this woman, that can be kind of a tough pill to swallow because on the face of it, I would have said, my life is not unmanageable. Look at how hard-charging I am. Yeah, like I just, I have everything. I've got my job and I do my thing and blah, blah, blah. And meanwhile, I'm harboring an active fantasy of letting everything go. I literally had this fantasy of like, I wish I could just let everything go, the job, the relationship, the apartment. Like, what am I keeping all of this uh, facade going for? I just want to go somewhere where I can drink the way I want to drink. And I actually have remembered this recently. I had, when I had that thought, I remember being jealous of my ex-husband who was an active alcoholic and regular listeners of the show will remember that he actually died of his disease uh, last year, late last year. But, you know, at the time he was still, well, he was drinking himself to death and, and, I knew that too. I knew that he was going to die, and and yet I was je- kind of jealous of him because he had just let everything go. Like, oh, you know, look, he doesn't keep everything going. That's why am I keeping up? Why am I working so hard to keep everything going? And yet, like my my life was so unmanageable. I was just frantic and anxious all the time. I was fighting with everything. I'm harboring fantasies of living on a desert island. Um, right. You know, I mean, unmanageability takes many forms, you know, is I guess what I'm saying. For sure. I did a lot better with powerlessness. Like, I understood that if I drank, I was screwed. Like, I understood. And I still do mm-hmm. to this day. I'm like, okay, I can't. Like, I can't. It'll take me places I don't want to go. Like, I have no control over alcohol. But, yeah, unmanageability, that component can be tough. But now, I, you know, I have some time. I look around, and I still have unmanageability, for sure. <laughs> you know, there's oh, still yeah. things that I'm working on. Um, and, yeah, I, I didn't get that, even really look at that unmanageability part for a while. It just it right. soaks I, in little by little, doesn't it? Like you, yeah, yeah. for sure. You don't have to figure it out on the show day. a number of times. The, the healthier I get, the sicker I was. Like, we start out just thinking, if I can just stop drinking, my life will be perfect. And then you stop drinking, and you're like, oh, okay, well, actually, here's why I was drinking, because I really feel conflicted about trying to hide how I really feel, which is what you were saying earlier. Like, 
how I my brain doesn't work the way I feel like it should, and so I don't feel perfect. I don't I feel flawed, or you know. And then we so we just keep backing up the truck and peeling back the layers of the onion, as you said, Catherine, and just you know just uh, it's. It, it's and that's why it takes a lifetime. I mean, you do start to feel better, but you just you keep learning more and more and more about yourself. You keep improving, and not only do you get to where you don't need alcohol or any other numbing mechanism to get you out of who you are, but you're just so authentically who you are that it's it's powerful. It's fantastic. Um, it's imperfect, and that's okay. But but, but it's, and it's, it's also so great that we're not alone. You know, yeah, like right, this is totally. all, as this stuff is coming out, I mean, before I used to try to handle everything alone. So like recently my husband, my now husband said to me like, well, when you were moving out of your apartment out of this like abusive marriage that I had been in, he said, who went over to help you get your stuff? And I said, what do you mean who went over with me? And he said, well, who did you ask for help? And I said, I didn't ask for help. I just, I asked him, my ex, to leave, and I just went there. And he's like, that was crazy. And I'm like, I know. But it wasn't until I got... But I can do it myself. Yeah. I mean, like, that is, now that's unmanageability. That's like ego, self-will run riot, right, where I'm like, (laughs) I can do this. And, And now that I'm sober, you know, Gene will tell you when I'm walking down the street and I'll, like, run up a hundred dollar phone bill on my cell phone calling Canada because like I need help with something (laughs) and it's worth every penny because you know now we can this stuff starts coming out but we can we have support that's amazing you know I I get a lot of readers that say I'm trying to figure it out or you know I've been trying to do it by myself and my first thought now is why would you ever want to do that why would you ever even oh, my God, there's so much help. You don't have to do anything yourself. And, in fact, not only do you not have to, you really can't. Like, we cannot do this mm-hmm. alone. No. It's counterintuitive at first because I think for a lot of us, the alcoholism, really, we really want to isolate. I mean, it, you get to that point where you, you just, yeah. I just wanted to be alone. I just wished I just wished I could just, at the end of the day, I mean, I love my kids, but I wanted them to go to bed. And then I just wanted to be alone when that, you know, right. when that good part of my day was done. And I, I really wanted to get well alone, too. And um, it, it took me a long time, like, just sort of serendipitously ended up at six months sober. I talked to someone else who was a speaker at an event who sort of disclosed in his in his presentation that he was in recovery, and I very timidly went up to him afterwards and was like, um, uh, I'm in recovery. It's my six-month anniversary. Aww. And he was like, oh, my God, that's amazing. And he gives me this big hug. And, and um, you know, I, I was like, oh, that's why people go to meetings. I get it. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. It just that's I good. had never talked to anybody who even knew what it was like. I was at a convention. I mean, everybody else was drunk at that convention. And it was just such a relief. Like, I just felt like my my soul wept with relief to not be alone. And that's when I really started seeking other people. But up to that point, you know, I was still driving the bus and I was, you know, very willful and, and um, just had no interest in joining anybody else on this journey. 
funny, hey? And you know what? When I was at my sickest, I was in an organization that had 13 committees, and I was on every single committee. And um, I remember someone saying, like, wow, you do a lot of work. And I remember thinking, I'd be so much happier if everyone else would quit every committee and let me run it myself. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about manager of the universe, right? Like, Yeah, I get it, yeah. So it makes me really happy that now we collaborate on shows like this and and work together with people. It really is a beautiful thing. So if there's anyone listening who's who thinks that they're pretty happy doing this alone, just I promise you it is better with other people. However you get that, it is really better to connect with other people. But I will say that I liked to do everything by myself and and overwork myself because then that gave me what I've now learned in in sobriety was a real sense of being a victim. I was I was really in love with my story and mm. and that gave me an opportunity to say, "Oh, I work so hard and I do so much and everything is so hard." Um and then that was big justification for my drinking. Yeah. Was that your And so I care so I carried that into recovery is what I'm saying. Like in the beginning, I yeah. didn't want, I didn't want help with anything. That was my, cause that was my go-to. Yeah. And did, did you feel like that helped you stay blameless? Like this isn't really my fault. Was that part of it? What in, in recovery? Yeah. Like as you carried it into recovery, was it just sort of that old habit of sort of defending yourself, even as you changed it, but you know, not really wanting to, to own it. I mean, it's a relief when we learn, like, this isn't really our fault. It's not your fault, but it is your responsibility to get well. And no, I was sort of keen. Yeah, I was keen to own it, but then I thought that I could just sort of own it on my own and not let anybody let anybody in. And I started to let go of some of the victim-y stuff. But then, you know, for, I guess for me, I've sort of figured out that there's always there's fear underneath every negative emotion for me. And so the victim-y stuff was just, you know, fear of not being good enough, fear of, you know, connecting with other people. And um, so that was sort of stage two. Letting people in was to kind of get at that fear. And I, earlier you had used, before the show started, you had used the term from Bread and Bread. Uh, vulnerable hang vulnerability hangover. Yeah, and mm-hmm. as I would share, like deeply, I would I would I'd walk away with this feeling of oh my god, like I've connected with this person, but I share too. Like I honestly would feel sick when I open up. Yes, and it took a while for that to go away. And obviously, the blog I is as open as I am on on that blog. I'm not seeing people, right? <laughs> like, I'm just mm. writing it, so I don't get that vulnerability hangover. And it, it took me a while to be comfortable enough with myself that I could share whatever I wanted and it doesn't matter. I'm sharing it to help people when I'm comfortable with my story, but that takes a while. Do you find that as you as you write, it helps you work through some of it? You know, you might start out writing about something that's bothering you, but you feel better just through the process of explaining it in a post. Have you had that experience? I, I have. I have for sure. Um, for me, when I go back and read... It's amazing how deep, deeper it actually is. 
So it's almost that I write about it before it's completely processed. Mm-hmm. So I'll right. go back and read, and I'm like, oh, my gosh, yeah, that's what kind of opened up this issue that I had to work through. Or, um, yeah. Jean, how about you? How do you feel about that in your blogging? I, you know, I, I often find that um, I, I try to blog. As my blogs are almost essays. Like I try to, I guess, I always try to find the lesson in what's going on in my life and then mm. ask people, you know, how they relate to that. And so the the way that I write it really does often help me work through it. But then sometimes it's painful, too, because I'll go back and read something from a few years ago. And, you know, that was like... I had gotten step one of the lesson and written about it, but I might have still been wrong about a couple other things, you know? Yeah, exactly. So now I look back on it and I'm like, oh, gosh, maybe I should take that down, you know? Because right. I don't really think that anymore. But I think it's important to leave it all there because it, the dots connect and form a journey. And yeah. so that's sometimes where my vulnerability comes in is that I – I work through a lot as I write it. I mean, I you know, I was feeling I'm, I'm, my dog died last two weeks ago, and I I wrote about it, just tears just streaming down my face. It did really help me feel better to process as I wrote that, and I got a lot of warm feedback back from, you know, the readers were beautifully supportive about it. But for the most part, I'm writing more about, like, what the lessons of recovery, and you know, sometimes I get it wrong, and people are great about writing comments and saying, like, I think you need to rethink this, Jean. (laughs) That's where some of my, you know, really greatest growth has come from. So I don't think I'm being vulnerable. And then I read the follow-up. I'm like, oh, (laughs) I, uh, you know, I, you leave it up because it's, it's all part of it all part of it. And that that brings brings up something Jean which, you know, and I we, everybody was just so sorry to hear about your your dog and what a experience that was for you and as I read it, I was struck once again of the kinds of things that we can do when we're sober and how we can show up for our our lives authentically, yeah. you know, whether it's in grief with a loss like that or, um, you know, any challenging thing that comes our way. I mean, you know, I used to just talk about unmanageability. I used to react to stuff like that like a ping pong ball just all over the place and, like, you know, smoking cigarettes and drinking was going to make it better and and you're just shoving all that, stuffing all those feelings deep inside. And so, you know, it was really a, mark of your um you know your recovery and how much it's been integrated in everything of who you are and that you you were able to experience that moment and start processing it right away authentically oh, in sobriety thank you thank you and just just so our listeners know what happened my my dog was mauled to death in front of me um by a big dog and I had to stay calm and just deal with this horrific situation and mess. And um, and because of the work of recovery in that moment, I was able to just immediately find gratitude. The, although it was horrible, I, I was able to get myself through it by immediately 
starting to work on gratitude. I was grateful my kids didn't see it. I was grateful, you know, that he wasn't suffering for very long. And um, and recovery got, I, I, yeah, I don't know how I could have even, not only not handled that moment well if I were still drinking, but I think that I would have been affected by it with a lot more powerful resonance in a negative way. When we're not when we're not numbing how we feel, we can actually process pain faster and move through difficult things easier. Right. And, and Emily talked about losing your- her dad and how that really that pain really just you know kicked off a spiral with her addiction as a young woman. And um, that's something we learn as we we're older and wiser mm-hmm. and we're stronger in recovery is that. Life hurts. Bad things happen. We we are so much better equipped to it when we're actually feeling things and and um, working in the moment. So. To God and being grateful. Yeah, I'm yeah. sure for you though the comments that you got after that that traumatic experience were so loving and caring. I'm sure when you shared about your dog. So there are lots oh, they, of, lots yeah. of the comments were like. They they really were, and I, I mean, the people were so kind, and I needed that, and I appreciated that, and I was glad that they were also hearing the bigger message and finding some inspiration and in, in sort of understanding that whatever their ho- you know horrible moment that may lay in their future, you know that they I hope that I hope that people understand that they will be better equipped for it when life does throw you a. A turd gift, as Ellie called it. <laughs> when, when you get some ick thrown at you, it's nice to know that you can handle it. But the blog is really wonderful in that way, to be a blogger, is to be connected with people in just such an amazing way. And to see the way that they talk to each other is, is really, I mean, it's fascinating and it's beautiful, too. It's just, it is community. And it's the thin edge of a wedge, too. I mean, I think... Online support is great. It's it's a great start. And I think over time it sort of helps us be a little bit fearful of connecting with other people and maybe telling our story. I mean, I was a person who was on a plane reading about Emily secretly tapping it into my phone and then hiding it in my hotel room to mm-hmm. look at her website five years ago. And now, today I was on a plane and I was blah, 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 about recovery and, <laughs> advocacy and helping people and getting the message out and that you know that that, that we we don't need to be ashamed we we need to help each other and we need to have our voices be heard and and that's a long long way to come and that came because of it started with online support and online dialogue it's amazing yeah. Emily look what you did <laughs> right <laughs> Yay. Cool. yeah when you sent me that I was like that's so neat like it's just the mustard seed that they talk about like yeah. You know, you know yeah. sometimes people have to hear, you know, gather 100 master seeds before they can take that first step into recovery. But, you know, we were all yeah. called, I think, to be at the front line and share our stories in a big way. Yeah, it's a ripple effect. It's beautiful. Yeah, for sure. Well, ladies, we have rounded out our hour here. And so at this point, what we like to do is just kind of each take a moment and, and um, share what our takeaway is from this discussion. So, Catherine, I'll have you go first, if you will. Wow. Well, I just, I really feel energized tonight. So, Emily, thanks so much for for being here and sharing. Um, I just was so moved by 
the use of the word we and how powerful that is and, you know, thinking through how sort of amazed I was in early recovery. I had all these things that I was just so ashamed of, starting with the drinking, but lots of stuff really and lots of painful experiences in my past. And when I started to get to know people in recovery, they said, yeah, me too. And I just I met all kinds of people who had... You know, I, everything that I thought that I had done or that I had experienced, me too. <laughs> and and more, I think more importantly, the the emotional landscape that people um, really understood what I felt like was such a complex emotional landscape that I had, and other people were feeling the exact same things. Like, whoa, that's. And we get that every week on this show. You know, every every single time we talk, I go, wow, yeah, me too. And um, so I'm just, I'm so glad that you mentioned that, Emily. Because, um, yeah, the word we, it's a powerful one. Yeah, for sure. Thank you. Thanks, Catherine. Um, and the, I want to add that what really stands out to me is just the courage that you had that day Emily, to go and talk to your neighbor and to say, I need help. And action, you know, we when we're in the stages of change, we go from think awareness to planning to action. And that day you took action and, and you found help and it changed your life. So it's that courage to, to reach out and ask for help. And um, however that looks, um, just to know that help is available, you're not alone and and there is that we community out there and that people in recovery have generally an amazing passion for helping other people because we really don't want anyone to suffer. So just the thought that if you're scared to ask for help because you think, oh, no one's going to want to help me, you just will be blown away by how people help. <laughs> right. And, Emily, I'll give you the last word on what your takeaway is from tonight. Well, first of all, I want to thank you guys so much for having me on here. I've listened to it, and so it's super special for me to be a guest. And I um, I just kind of went, went over the fact that every time I share my story, I, I'm making somebody else feel less alone, you know, giving mm-hmm. them just one step closer to, to getting help themselves. And so um, for me, it kind of went over, if you read my last blog on my blog post it kind of sounds like the end of my blogging and so I think tonight may have been the the spark I needed to continue to share my story so I kind of think it's meant to be that that I was here with you guys tonight and there may be another blog post soon I did take a long pause (laughs) (laughs) oh that's great thank you for that that. and yeah you know it gets it gets better and I heard you guys saying you're not alone, and that's the biggest thing. I think that that's why we all do this. We felt so alone. Mm-hmm. You know, people looking for recovery are not alone at all. Amen. That is so true. No matter how you, how much you try to convince yourself otherwise, it's it's really true. Well, thank you, Emily. Thank you so much. It's absolutely a delight to talk to you and to just watch in awe at how life goes and how, you know, 
the the moments from the past kind of wove forward into now is just amazing to me and I'm I'm really grateful for all you've been doing and for the role that you've played in my in my life and I'm really thank grateful you. that you're on the Bubble Hour sharing your story with everyone so thank you thank you for having me and just a reminder to our listeners the blog is emilyism.com and also, if you want to know what a sober chick can do when it comes to having fun, check out also Emily's business at etcbyemily.com. And as we close the show tonight, we'd like to direct you to our parent organization, shiningstrong.org. There you'll find links to all our resources, including the Bubble Hour and Crying Out Now and other initiatives around recovery advocacy. You can visit the Bubble Hour's website at thebubblehour.com and you'll find a link to many recovery resources, including my blog, Unpickled, and Ellie's blog, One Crafty Mother. Our email address is thebubblehour at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter, and let us know your feedback on tonight's show and any topics or suggestions that you'll have. So thank you to all our listeners for being a part of the Bubble Hour, and we hope everyone has a great evening. Good night. Good night. Thanks, ladies. Good night. You're Thank welcome. you for having me. I know. Thanks, Em. Bye.